Welcome to episode 241 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. This is the energy politics look back at 2023, look forward to 2024 episode. And I'm very, uh, very happy to have with me a frequent interviewee uh, on the video side of our interviews. And that is uh, Professor Dwayne Bratt, uh, who is in the Faculty of Political Science at the Mount Royal University. So Dwayne, welcome to the interview. Yeah, happy to be here, Markham. Well, this is a lot, a lot of fun because I mean, look, I can't, Kenny fought, Jason Kenny, the former Alberta Premier of the United Conservative Party, fought with Ottawa all the time. But new Premier, well, I guess she's been in, you know, for what now, a little over a year, uh, Premier Danielle Smith has taken it to a whole nother level. I mean, this is, they're not a sparrow falls that is not Justin Trudeau's fault. In, yeah, in her, in her on way. that, because um, I've written extensively on Premier Kenny's fight back strategy um, and, and all of the different tools that he used to fight Ottawa over energy policy. When Smith ran for the UCP leadership, and this is really important because winning the leadership, I think, was tougher than winning the election. Uh, this was in the summer of 2022. One of her major planks was that Kenny didn't fight hard enough uh, against. And, and for those that followed Kenny, that was quite shocking and, and surprising. Um, but the fact is, Kenny didn't have a lot of wins. Now, the question is, was it because of his strategy or just he was fighting on the wrong issue? And so one, just if you walk through some of them, you know, the court actions over the carbon tax, which he lost. Um, the Allen inquiry over um, foreign funding of environmental groups, which showed that, in fact, that wasn't the case uh, and deeply embarrassed the, the government. The equalization referendum, which he won, but never changed the equalization formula. So Kenny fought, but he lost a lot of those fights. Smith is trying a different strategy. Let's see if the results are anything different. Now, she has had some wins, particularly in the courts, which were ironically started by Jason Kenney. You know, think about the, the decision on the Impact Assessment Act, for example. Um, and she's continuing down that road. Um, but really, I think the, the issue between Smith and Kenny is not whether they're fighting, it's how they're fighting and whether the results will be any different. What, how is Danielle Smith fighting the federal government on energy policy? I think the biggest tool that she has used or has threatened to use, and it's still in the early days, is the Sovereignty Act. But the Sovereignty Act has a ball between how she campaigned on it in the summer of 2022, how it was introduced as her first bill when she became premier in the fall of 2022, some of the revisions and so the final bill, and then when it actually was utilized for the first time over the um, net zero uh, electricity draft regulations, wherein questions about the Sovereignty Act admitted that it was largely just symbolic. So the point is, we don't know yet. Uh, I expect that there will be court challenges in 2024 
over the Sovereignty Act. There were uh, Indigenous communities that wanted to launch it almost immediately. And the courts kind of said, well, it hasn't been invoked yet, so you have no case. Now that it's been invoked over net electricity, and I expect it to be invoked again over um, the uh, oil emissions cap, then it's going to be up to to the courts. Uh, I don't think this is nearly as radical, despite how she portrayed it, as what Scott Moe in Saskatchewan has done, because this is going to be the first big test. Come January 1st, Scott Moe has directed Sask Energy to stop collecting the carbon tax, which he has admitted is a violation of the rule of law. But he's doing it anyway because he says that the carbon tax is bad, and particularly that carbon tax carve out, which I think was one of the most important political decisions that the Trudeau government made um, and has been an absolute train wreck ever since they made it. I, I want to talk about, before we get into some of the issues, I want to talk about Danielle Smith as a political leader in, in Alberta and her, her emergence as a powerful voice in energy politics. I had not expected this. I think, you know, I mean, I, I, if you read her letters to the prime minister, you read her press releases, you read transcripts from her press conferences. She says a lot of really dumb stuff and a lot of stuff that, that really is inaccurate. And, and some of it's just flat out lying. I, I hate to say it, but that's, that's what it is. Nevertheless, at the higher level, she has emerged as a major voice and a, and very politically influential in 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 the Can Canadian context around energy politics and i think the her ability to influence the federal government is actually higher than kenny's was i think i would agree with you um for several reasons one is i think smith is clearly aligned with the industry with the oil and gas industry uh and not the big players I mean the mid-sized players, and the best illustration of this is Dave Yeager. Dave Yeager used to be president of the Wild Rose Party. He was a candidate for Wild Rose when Daniel Smith was leader. He has written uh, policy documents for her. I think he is in her ear a lot, and he is part of the representative of sort of that, that mid-level, junior, mid-sized companies. Um, and that has been going on before she ran for leadership. In contrast, Jason Kenney didn't spend a lot of time in Alberta before becoming premier. And his files were on immigration. His files were on defense. He was thinking nationally. So he did not have the same ties to industry that Daniel Smith does. And when you start to pull back on some of these decisions, and I think the most egregious was the renewables moratorium. Not so much what they did, but the stories that they told about the origins of it. You know, that this was coming from the rural municipalities of Alberta, or this was coming from the Alberta Utilities Commission, or this was coming from uh, the electric uh, systems operator. All of that is false. Uh, we know that she started this almost the moment that she was elected in May of 2023. We got a briefing note heavily redacted 
of a meeting between Nathan Newdorf, the Minister for Electricity, um, and the Alberta Utilities Commission. And everything's redacted except for a couple things. The date, which is mid-June, just after he'd been appointed. The title, which was about suspension of renewables. And the third was an introductory paragraph explaining what AUC does. In other words, this was a minister who'd never met with them before. So this was the briefing note for a first visit. But the first item on that agenda was to suspend renewables. That's in June. The decision rolls out in August. So where did that come from? I have no doubt that that came from the natural gas industry. Yes. And, and on the the source of uh, Danielle's political strength in the industry, we often talk about the producers, you know, like you mentioned, the small and medium sized producers. Yeah. There's absolutely no doubt. But Dave Yeager comes out of the service sector. Yeah. He's never been, he's, as far as I know, he's never worked for an oil and gas producer, but, yeah. and he runs a service company. And that is a deeply, deeply conservative uh, group. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas the, the bigger oil companies tend to be, you know, they argue about policy and, and but once the, 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 you know, the, the policy and the regulations are in, they, they abide by it. That's the way they operate as big public companies. Anyway, you were going to say about, well, there's a second element besides the tie to industry, uh, and that is the connection to Take Back Alberta. Now, Take Back Alberta, there's no, no way that Daniel Smith becomes premier without the role of Take Back Alberta. And they play two influential roles. Influential role number one was signing up members in winter of 2022 to remove Jason Kenney. And the clear driver of that was over COVID regulations. Okay? Then they swung their same support behind Smith. Now, Smith barely wins. She wins on the sixth ballot. Um, you know, it took a lot to get over the finish line. Those 30, 40, 50,000 voters of Take Back Alberta, there's no way she could do it without them. Now, yes, they were focused on COVID, and there was a lot about anti-COVID regulations in her leadership race, uh, and it actually has continued up until today. And I expect tomorrow and into the to the new year. But the Take Back Alberta people have figured that they kind of won that. So now they're moving on to other issues. And one of those other issues is around Alberta identity. And here, it's not just the economic interests that the oil and gas sector have, which are deep in this province, as you would expect any major industry to have. But even people not associated with the industry identify with it. It's, it's almost part of the political culture here. And an anti-Ottawa sentiment that has existed in this province since 1905 and the creation of the province, but has morphed you know, from agricultural and crow rates um, up to the oil and gas sector. And so I think it's sort of the, the economic interests and her ties to industry tied with that political culture of anti-Ottawa sentiment. That as much as Kenny tried to do that, it's tough when you've been in Ottawa 20 years to do that successfully. Uh, and now you have people say, you know, Kenny, he was always a federalist. He never really liked Alberta. And, and somehow it's either you're Alberta or Ottawa and you can't be both. And, and that's how Kenny is portrayed in the, in the conservative circles now.
Um, Jana Brown, a Calgary-based pollster, and uh, Gerald Wesley, who is a University of Alberta political science professor, have both done a lot of work on the uh, identification uh, with oil and gas in Alberta political culture. I remember doing an interview with Jana where she said over 50% of Albertans are oil and gas. They're, if you attack oil and gas, you attack their identity. That's very powerful politics. And yeah. you can see you can see David Parker, the, the head of Take Back Alberta, now starting to comment on social media about energy issues that that are, I mean, they're extreme. In a previous interview, you called Danielle Smith a radical populist. You said she had yep. been radicalized. Well, David yep. Parker is radical. And 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 it you oh, can much see that influence, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And now you look at the makeup of her caucus. So yes, she won an election, um, but thirty-seven of her forty-nine members are outside the big cities, um, and so there the identities are even stronger against Ottawa and and support of the oil and gas sector because a lot of these are one-industry towns, right. I ha I have a hypothesis, Dwayne. So let me run this hypothesis past you and, and see what you think of it. So the we are, I do a lot, half of my reporting is on the global energy transition and the other half is about Alberta oil and gas. And very often I'm talking about the implications for Alberta of that energy transition. And out of the World Petroleum Congress in September, which was in Calgary, the only thing of note was that OPEC led a uh, led the the companies and the they led a, a campaign at the Congress to solidify the narrative around the fact around the slow energy transition argument. Peak oil demand is not going to peak till twenty forty five at one hundred sixteen million barrels a day. Uh, emerging economies like Africa and India are going to stick with fossil fuels. And Smith was front and center in that, front and center. She was quoted in the press. She gave a press conference that I attended. She talked about it all, all the time. And it's very clear to me that she has, she has adopted that slow energy transition outlook. And she doesn't think in terms of phasing out oil and gas she thinks of expanding oil and gas she sees this mm -hmm. as a marketing opportunity and that's a big part of what so what she, she's trying to do is she is a putting up a shield around the alberta industry to protect it from in her view uh federal climate and energy policies that are punitive again in her view and at the same time trying hard to negotiate with with ottawa to actually expand exports of Alberta oil and gas. And it's it's almost, it's almost like she's the industry's chief marketing officer. That has a lot to do with how she handles herself and how she frames her politics, in my opinion. Oh, uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, the, the trip to Dubai uh, was probably the, the most symbolic of that. She did not go to Dubai to try to find solutions. She tried to put, you know, um, a rake in the wheels. Um, I think unsuccessfully in the sense that um, A, Stephen Gibo used the Dubai stage to announce the emissions cap. Uh, and B, for the first time, COP announced a phasing out. Now, it's still watered down language, but it's the first acknowledgement 
that COP has ever made about the phasing out of fossil fuels. And I think that was notable. So she did not go there in a, uh, to, to try to work on solutions. She was there to try to defend Alberta. The, but the problem with Alberta is going to be the transition is going to happen and is happening regardless of what occurs inside of Alberta. Um, and we rely on export markets. And so we rely on prices of oil and all of those things. We are in an international scope. She is portraying it as a fight with Stephen Gibo. But even if you remove Stephen Gibo, um, and I think there's some real overreaching that, that Gibo has done, you still have this transition issue facing her. But it's better to ignore the international factors and focus on one man trying to destroy your, your industry. And that's how it's being framed. Yes, and I, and I can see from her point of view why you would do that. I mean, it's the old Ralph Klein strategy, right? And even to some extent, Lougheed fighting with uh, Pierre uh, Trudeau. But Although I think there has been an escalation, just as Smith's Sovereignty Act was an escalation of Kenny's fight back right. strategy. The language she uses about Gibo, I have yet to hear in my years of reading or studying uh, uh, Canadian politics, language between politicians like that. Treachery. Say treachery. That. Treachery. Yes. Uh, she calls on him to be fired almost daily. She does not say the same thing about Justin Trudeau. She refuses to meet with Pebo. And, and I think there's a whole host of reasons for that. But that's a really interesting dynamic there, because I don't think the removal of Gibo or even the shift in the federal government solves Alberta's problems. Well, that, now that's interesting because I interviewed uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources for non-Canadian listeners. And and we talked about that. And he said, when, you know, I know Jason Kenney fights with us all the time. And, you know, it was it was always the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. I mean, this is what we do in public, you know, to satisfy our domestic our internal political considerations. But he said behind closed doors, he said we have very good working relationships with with uh, UCP ministers, with their deputies and with the staff work very closely with with federal staff. And we're very happy with those those relationships. And I think that that is not the case. I mean, you'll remember, um, I forget the issue now, where Smith came out and, and opposed a, might have been the draft electricity re regulations. Anyway, there were talks taking place with the Alberta bureaucrats that were very productive. And, and, and then Smith basically torpedoed them. And Wilkinson came out and said, what are you doing? Why yeah. would you do this? We're, we're making great progress behind the scenes. And now you came out and said this, this and he was really frustrated about it. Yeah. And um, Wilkinson is someone you can work with. Freeland is someone that she can work with. And we've seen that with some of the stuff around uh, the, the plastics facility, uh, the petrochemicals, um, you know, carbon capture investments that the Wilkinson and Freeland are doing. But, the uh, the relationship with the environment minister uh, is just so toxic. I mean, they haven't even had a bilateral meeting uh, ever, um, and so that that speaks that that speaks volumes. And you just see the the path. So when I look at sort of twenty twenty three, it really is Gibo versus Smith uh, on a whole host of of files. Whether that was the emissions cap announcement whether that was net electricity, whether that was the plastics ban. Now, many of these are only in draft form. 
bear, you know, and I think that's important to note. The one exception, and I think this was, as I've said, one of the big stories of 2023 was the regional carve out for home heating oil. Um, that I think was an act of, of desperation by the Trudeau government to appeal to, to voters in Atlantic Canada. But I don't know if they walk through all of the steps and and how this has created so much additional tension across the, the country. And there was no real political upside to that decision, which handcuffed their own policy and their own speaking point. Yeah, fair enough that the politics of that were handled handled poorly. Uh, I, I still argue that the fact that Alberta uh, has output-based pricing on its industrial emitters tax, which is hugely beneficial for the oil and gas industry. Suncor last year paid 47 cents a barrel for uh, carbon tax. That's that you're not when prices are $80 a barrel, 47 cents is just the cost of doing business. It doesn't incent anybody to do anything. So anyway, yeah. I could I argued that that was a, uh, has been almost equivalent to a carve up, but you know whatever. Uh, okay, so that's 2023. Dwayne, what do you see coming up in 2024? Is it just more of the same? I, I think so. Uh, we will get some resolution on some of these uh, court challenges. Uh, I expect that there will. I want to see what happens in Saskatchewan. You know, as I said. Uh, when um, you you have this situation where you're you're basically defiantly saying we will not follow the law here, there has to be some sort of repercussion for that. Or what type of country do we do we live in? Because if it's tolerated, then everyone else is going to do the same thing, and they're going to not just do it on carbon taxes; they're going to do it on other files as well. So much so that Smith has even mused about creating a crown corporation just so that she can stymie the federal government. I'm not sure the crown corporation gives them immunity, uh, like most seems to think, but let's see how the, the feds respond. The other is, I expect that there will be a challenge on, on the, the Sovereignty Act, not from Ottawa, but from groups within Alberta over that, particularly Indigenous people. Where does that go? Um, does the Sovereignty Act get involved in the emissions um, uh, cap? Because I think the emissions cap is much more significant than the net electricity. And if I had been advising Smith, you know, to say, hold your fire, because what are you arguing about with net electricity? You're arguing about whether it should be 2035 or 2050. At the end of the day, that's what the fight is about, is about 15 years. Um, and it's not even 15 years when you look at some of the, um, the compromises that, that Wilkinson has brought in. The emissions cap, though, that's something much more significant. And I would have saved it for that because now that you've used it, right, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube here. Uh, save that for something that's much more existential than a fight over what year it should be. And so I think those are the things that we're going to see play itself out in, in 2024. I don't know if you have an answer for this, Dwayne, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious. Um, do you have any thoughts on why the federal government chose to layer a cap and trade system on top of a carbon industrial emitters carbon tax for 
for the oil and gas industry as instead of, because they only had two options in their 2022 discussion paper. And the other option was simply toughening up the existing tax, which would have been in many ways, I think, simpler and might have been easier to sell in Alberta and would have taken a lot of Smith's thunder. But instead, they chose to do something entirely new and new regulations, a new bureaucracy. I have no idea on that because a cap and trade is the most complicated type of system that you can come up with. And so you could say, well, they're using cap and trade because it is so complicated and people can't put causality, except the Alberta government and many Albertans aren't looking at the cap and trade. They're looking at the first part, which is the emissions cap itself. And uh, so I don't know why they chose that. Uh, the interesting thing with the emissions cap, cap and trade, is it has satisfied nobody. Um, the environmentalists think that this is a cop-out to industry. Um, and Smith believes that this is a existential attack on uh, the province of Alberta. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of people endorsing this idea, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. Uh, it just, uh, we're still in draft stage. Um, but, uh, I'd like to see where, how they came up with that idea. Yeah. And I, I think too, and it, given Smith's deep roots in the small and medium sized oil and gas producers, they're the ones who are going to be, I suspect, disproportionately affected by the, by the emissions cap. Yeah. Because whether they'll be able to be able to, um, a purchase the credits or B, be able to produce the credits like the big players are. The cap itself, you can discuss the constitutionality of that, but let's go back to the origins of this, uh, because it's an origin story that I don't think has been told enough. There is that famous photo of Rachel Notley announcing her climate leadership plan. And there she is, she's with Shannon Phillips, the environment minister. Uh, and in the back row, there is Steve Williams and Murray Edwards. Um, you know, they the big industry players. But if you scan to the right, there is Stephen Guibault on stage when he was head of Equitaire. Um, and one of the reasons he was there is there was a side component to that climate leadership plan around an emissions cap for the oil sands uh, that Guibault participated in coming up with. Now, it was never drafted into regulations uh, but it was a major part of hers, which is how she got industry on, on site. So Gibo understands where this emissions cap idea came from. And that came from the Alberta government that he was working with at that, at that time. Now, they didn't have the rest of this you know, cap and trade stuff. But it's interesting that that part of the story hasn't been brought up enough. Well, I have a part of that story. And I, I reported on it in 2018. It's in my book, uh, The New Alberta Advantage, Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. And I'll very quickly summarize it here, Dwayne. In 2014 and 2015, the five oil sand CEOs met with five environmental uh, uh, group executive directors in Calgary. They had a number of meetings. Uh, Zipporah Berman and Dave Collier were, were the respective co-chairs of the, of the two groups. They came up with a handshake deal in the spring of 2015 that included, that's where the 100 megaton a year emissions yeah. cap, that's where it came from. Because it didn't come Under from- Under Jim Prentice. Jim yes. Prentice started these dinners, yeah. Well, no, actually it came from the, those dinners got started by uh, Murray Edwards. 
and okay. and Steve Williams uh, cooked this up over scotch in the Calgary Petroleum Club. They were tired of getting beaten up all the time. Anyway, uh, that had a lot to do. That sparked uh, some of the political rebellion that led to Kenny in 2019 because it was the big players. Cap, remember Tim McMillan from who was the yeah. head of the Cap? He was furious, and his members were furious that the big companies had gone behind their back, cut a deal with the government that led to policies that, that they saw, think penalized them, like the the carbon tax and the and that uh, uh, just one of them, and that I think uh, Kenny skillfully uh, exploited, and it's funny that all of the all of the uh, CEOs that were part of that group uh, were gone in a, a year or two. It was very mm -hmm. contentious behind the scenes uh, within the industry. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think you see a consumer-based carbon tax in Alberta without the support of industry. And, and you can understand why industry was doing that. There was already uh, an industrial carbon tax. And they said, look, if you want to say, you know, punish the polluter, People driving their cars are polluting, right? So let's spread it all all out, and that's where the anger is uh, federally now is is around the the carbon the consumer based carbon tax. It's not about anything else. It's it's like the GST. You know, the GST replaced a very bad manufactured sales tax, but it was hidden and nobody knew what it was. They didn't realize they were paying more money, but when the GST came in, that made it visible. And that's where the carbon tax is now. And that's why you've got Pierre Polyev walking around with an Axe the Tax t-shirt on and most likely is going to win on that. And we'll, well, we'll get rid of it. Well, let's talk about the the impact of the Canadian Conservative Party uh, perhaps winning the 2025 election. Now, we know for a fact that the oil, Alberta oil and gas industry has been for a long time been supportive of the conservative parties. They've they've been major yeah. fundraisers. They've had major people like Mike Binion have had a major influence on and Mike Rosa from Tourmaline and people like that have had a major influence on the CPC climate policy and energy policy platforms. There, there's a sense again now that we're, you know, since we're maybe a year and a half or so away from the the, the next election, that the industry is hunkered down waiting for a, a prime minister a Poliev. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. And we know he will rip up the the carbon tax right off right off the bat. The question is, what does he do next? Um, does he go full hammer and tong against? Uh, the environmental measures against climate change and supportive of the industry, or does he just remove the large public irritant? And most of the public doesn't understand anything else. Uh, that's kind of my guess on where he's going to go, because you still have these international forces uh, at play. The, the other element at play here, though, is... Um, the American election, which is going to precede the Canadian election. That will be in November of 2024. If Donald Trump wins that election, who knows what his behavior will be? We know he is pro-oil, um, but he is so erratic that he could be pro-oil and also boycott Canadian oil at the same time. <laughs> yes, he right? could. Yes, because he is fundamentally a protectionist. He is not a free trader. Uh, the American oil industry has expanded. He is out for revenge. So what sort of shock 
is that going to do? Um, we, we simply don't know because I don't think he knows. Uh, but if you think that 2016 to 2020 was a complicated time period, this would be this would be a lot worse. This is why you know people pulling their hair out over um, draft electric vehicle regulations. Um, what what would Polyev do? Now, bear in mind, Quebec already has that. As BC does BC. Yeah. As does BC. As does California. As does New York. As does the European Union. We know from historical fact that a lot of auto regulations that California makes, because it is the largest market, end up being adopted nationwide. And if they're adopted in California and adopted nationwide in the U.S., they are going to be adopted in Canada. Um, and so I know there's a lot of hair wringing about these. They're still draft form, but that's already occurring. There's already a move to electric vehicles. And there we have Smith once again promoting hydrogen vehicles. Why is she promoting hydrogen vehicles? Because Alberta produces hydrogen. Is there any so on the one hand, she criticizes the infrastructure around electric vehicles. And there is a problem with a lack of infrastructure, but that is going to get built up just as we built up gas stations at the turn of the 20th century. But there's even less infrastructure for hydrogen. There's, in fact, there's no infrastructure. Yeah. And the, 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 the provincial government put out an RFP last year for $157 million to build some of it. And so maybe she's anticipating that that's going to come. But it's kind of a funny, just as a funny aside, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson comes, uh, used to own a, or be CEO of a hydrogen company in Vancouver and famously drives a hydrogen car. He promotes it, he promotes it all the time. And Smith likes to needle him with that, you know, that, yeah. that, that now she's going to buy it, buy a hydrogen car. But I was at a press conference one time where, where Wilkinson was talking with another hydrogen car owner about how they're, they're fueling, uh, the the fueling the tip of the fuel uh, wand or whatever you call it uh, freezes to the freezes to the car because hydrogen has to be kept at like 100 and, minus 160 or some god awful ridiculous temperature and so you have to that's a that's a, a kind of a humorous uh, you know problem that you've got with those with those vehicles so I can just imagine Premier Smith have, trying to yank the frozen uh, uh, pump handle off the off her side of her car anyway i didn't tell that story very well funny. you, you trust I mean, me you it's ask, funny folks uh, you, you ask about high-speed rail uh, you know and and she talks about a, a calgary to edmonton high-speed rail and she talks about uh an express rail from calgary to to bam but she pivots within seconds to talking about hydrogen rail yes exactly yeah and and, and of course, uh, that hydrogen would be made, uh, it would be blue hydrogen made with natural gas yep. from Alberta. So that's yep. why she's a. So, uh, what oh, and, are... and the other big issue I think we'll see in 2024, and it's uh, an Alberta specific one, is the moratorium will get lifted the end of February on renewables, but they're going to put in a set of conditions. And these conditions will be exclusive to wind, solar, geothermal, and they are not going to apply to any other form of energy. Uh, because, And that in particular is a large security deposit around cleaning up afterwards. And, you know, they're worried about the millions of dollars that it will be to clean up um, 
solar and wind farms after expiry while ignoring the hundred billion or more it will take to do oil and gas. And they almost justify it by saying we because of that hundred billion, we can't allow you to spend millions on on this. So watch for a very disproportionate at, uh, attack on, on renewables once the moratorium is lifted because they want to get rid of renewables. They do not want any comparable threat to natural gas because as Smith has said repeatedly, this is a natural gas province. One of the things I found astonishing was she and her ministers, principally Energy Minister uh, Brian Jean and Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz. We, we actually have two energy ministers, uh, Markham. We, we don't have an environment minister. We have two energy ministers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and both of them, uh, all three of them, dissed renewables publicly over and over and over again. They're unreliable. Uh, Smith may hinted that uh, potential outages over the past year were due to renewables, all yep. you know, on and on and on. I, I found that rather remarkable uh, that a premier would go out of her way to to to, criti to, to criticize and to use kind of, you know, uh, social media meme type arguments in doing so. Well, the moratorium seemed to come out of the blue in August until you started tracing the, the lead up. And there was a speech she gave to the rural municipalities of Alberta, who are split on this issue, that she used ex very extreme language against renewables. She didn't just say, you know, renewables are good, but we have to do this. It was hammer and tong, you know, they're ugly. They use prime agricultural land and blah, blah, blah. And then you go back over a year, even before she ran for the leadership of the party, and she is on a webcast with Rob Anderson, and Rob Anderson is using that same language against renewables. So it is not just that they see flaws with renewables, they really see it as a threat to, to natural gas. And it is there is a split in the rural parts of Alberta, depending on whether you have renewables on your land or whether you don't. If you don't, you see it as an ugly eyesore. If you do, you see it as a profit generator. And by the way, you have a choice to put solar panels on your farmland where you do not have a choice if they want to drill for oil on your farmland, right? And so um, there has been studies shown that, no, it's not on prime agricultural land because farmers know better, right? It is on weak, non-productive land, um, but it is a fight between farmers that have and farmers that don't. And that's why the Rural Municipalities Association has, has tried to play it both ways. But the government of Alberta, this is a government initiative. They were not being lobbied. They, we know this, that this was, this was part of their agenda. And they see it as a threat to natural gas. I want to wrap up our conversation this way, Dwayne. And it seems to me, and, and this comes out of my, you know, the work that I do reporting on the, on the energy transition, it seems to me this is a very unique moment in time where... Alberta uh, should be looking at its energy industry and say, okay, we're facing an ex oil and gas is facing an existential crisis. We don't know when that crisis is going to uh, erupt and be full blown, but it, we can see it coming. And even like the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, if you go to its, its webpage on, about climate change, it says oil and gas is facing an existential climate uh, crisis. So it's not like this is, this is new or in, in, in Alberta. 
this is a government that spends so much time fighting these, you know, these they start these dumpster fires, uh, political fights. And I guess the question I want to ask is, is it taking away from the required strategic direction that Alberta should be looking at right now to protect its long-term economic interests? Yes, because they are they're in denial. Um, it does not take much to scratch the surface uh, of, of some of the conservatives in Alberta who, who will use phrases like it doesn't matter what Alberta does. We're too, you know, Canada is only 2% of emissions and all of that. You scratch a bit more. They do fundamentally believe that climate change is a, is a hoax. And so they are going to fight and to prevent any sort of effort that is just delaying the inevitable, but also making it so much worse when that eventually occurs, because it will occur. And I don't know if it will occur in my lifetime uh, or my children's lifetime, but it is going to happen because we see these transitions occurring all the time. Uh, but over a long period of time. And, and the question is, when does that occur? But we are losing time uh, that we could be doing preparing. And instead, we are putting resources in to fighting what is going to happen naturally. They think it's all, if we just remove this government and remove this policy, um, everything will be fine. Uh, that's not the case. These are, these are global forces that are occurring. Is there... So if we if we agree that you know they're they're fighting these political fights because they're you know climate deniers and and energy transition deniers or maybe they agree with the you know OPEC's slow energy transition narrative and they've adopted that and all that so there there's this deep you know there's this fight going on with Ottawa over this and that and that takes away their attention we can argue that but behind the scenes. And I'll, I'll use an anecdote to illustrate where this is coming from. Uh, an economist that I was interviewing was going down to the Sierra Week in uh, in Houston, and he said publicly, the the oil and gas companies are yeah, we're you know they're they're kind of doing the they're cowboying the energy transition uh, argument behind closed scenes. That's he said that's all they can talk about. Yeah, they and know I it. would agree. I would agree that that was happening in Alberta in the Kenny years. Right. Okay. You had the, the public outrage, but privately working behind the scenes. Um, I'm not sure that's the case now. I, I think the, the government is in a place now where they are directing language. You shall not do this. You shall not talk about this. You shall not meet with these people. And that's a very different strategy, uh, because I think uh, uh, Kenny was a pragmatist at, at heart. And he was playing a populist role. It was a role. Uh, that is not him. Uh, pick up driving, get her done. That's not <laughs> Jason Kenney. I think mean, Jason Kenney was much more effective in, in boardrooms and, and things like that. That's not the case with the Smith people. Um, and so I think while that may still be the case in Houston, I'm not sure that's the case uh, in, in Calgary. And if they find out that's occurring in Calgary, there will be a cease and desist phone call telling them to stop <laughs> talking about that because oh. that would be accepting that it's just a matter of time right as, as opposed to it's never going to happen yes i i, I agree wholeheartedly uh, Dwayne, this has been fascinating really appreciate this thank you very much 
and uh, we'll have you back on the uh, the podcast uh, more often. Okay. Thanks, Markham. Thank you.